if you're interested in letting us oh, speak in English. <laughs> what am I trying to say, Andy? Hello and welcome to this week's The Film File. Episode 19. We're still here. No, 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 19. No, 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 19 for those old enough to know that reference. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And we're back with another fun-filled episode for Film Geeks by Film Geeks who are still in isolation. This week we're going to be looking at dystopian futures rather than a deep dive into one film. Let's deep dive an entire genre. Andy will be giving me his uh, his views on the classic film that I recommended last week, which was Finding Neverland, and I'll be picking another one for him this week. But of course, the man with the news, he sweeps across the internet to bring you hopefully some good news in these hard times, Mr. Andy Meakin. Yay! Let's just start off with the tr- traditional news that all films are delayed. Just deal with it. Films are going to be delayed, except... Tenet. Mm. Now, I saw this over the last week. We know very little about this project at the best of times. We might even get to see it a lot faster than than what we all thought. It's still sitting for July. And apparently the reason why they've not shifted this one, whereas every other film has shuffled, shunted around, is Nolan. Chris Nolan is the reason why it's it's still going ahead. Um, IMAX CEO Richard Gelfond has revealed that Nolan and not the studio are the ones pushing for the film to maintain its July release date and not be delayed. As he says in his own words, I don't know anyone in America who's pushing harder than Chris Nolan to have theatres open and have his movie released in July when it's scheduled for. Well, he has been very vocal about about keeping cinemas alive, not necessarily open, but very much alive and, and what kind of state the industry will be in after lockdown internationally has come to an end. But it's a bit of a bold move, and you know, you, he's one man arguing against world governments for the sake of the sake of his art. I understand that he wants his film to be seen. I understand he wants his film to be seen in the best way. There's not a chance in 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 hell that it will go to go to streaming before hitting hitting the cinema. But I do feel that you know you you can't for the sake of one movie you know jeopardize. Uh, jeopardize other people's lives and existence uh yeah i mean post-production has continued going on on this film all the way through lockdown with a lot of the workers using remote tools in their workflows to ensure that all their key staff members can report to work and keep the film on track it's red it's pretty much ready and there's the only thing which would stop this getting released is if cinemas are not open nolan's always been a huge proponent of things getting seen at the cinema and yeah, he's, always very, he's always been very vocal in all the decisions made around his films from the marketing to when it gets released, etc. So he's wanted this release date since day one. And that's why he's really keen for it to stick with the release date. He doesn't want to see the film suffer because it gets shunted and people then kind of forget about it or they get over the fact of excitement and get into the, oh, well, I'll watch it when it happens. He makes films for the cinema. That's that's his vision. He makes films that are a spectacle that deserve to be seen on the biggest screen he makes for the biggest screen uh, and and seen by an audience in a cinema but unfortunately sorry chris this is out of your hands a little bit because we are we are at, at the at the mercy of a virus not even governments we are at the mercy of a virus i hope yep. that we do get to see it um yeah. I, i'm looking forward to it i know very little about it i'm as intrigued as everyone else is the the trailers have given nothing away 
Uh, it, it looks like, well, we all thought it was going to be a sort of a, a Bondian spy movie at first. Apparently there's time travel elements and all yeah, kinds went, thrown in there. So it's going to be a full sci-fi. Absolutely. Went in a completely different direction than we, than we even anticipated. In related news around cinemas and reopening, now, we, I, I've been mentioning this over the past few episodes and, you know, I've been taking the worst case scenario approach and you you get like you in particular have been saying, well, no, people will still want to go to the cinemas and, you know, the, the, the future. But we're starting to see what I briefly touched on last week actually happening now because Universal are now in a full on war against AMC, who own Odeon in the UK and Regal, who owns Cineworld. This is all around a statement from... Universal saying that they'd be looking at video on demand releases alongside cinema releases in future after the success of Trolls 2 and them having to rethink the whole 12-week window strategy going forwards. Hmm. The, the concern from AMC on this is AMC have just basically turned around and gone, well, we're not showing any of your films because we don't want it to be on the distributor to decide which of their films have a small release window and which don't. It should be a like Universal one and then they stick to the 12 weeks. So they basically just said, Universal, get lost. Regal and Cineworld look like they were standing alongside AMC and saying, Universal, get lost. But they've clarified that they're not a blanket ban against a distributor. They would choose not to screen any films that don't honour the agreed window of typically 12 weeks. That's a better argument for me. Lines have been drawn in the sand. Both sides have stubbornly just said, well, we're sticking to this, we're sticking to this. And this is how negotiations start. And now a load of people are reporting on this with like, oh, well, that one, someone's going to lose out on all this. It's like, well, no, this is where the negotiations begin. Remember last year we had the Disney and Sony fallout over Spider-Man? Yeah. And the lines were drawn in the sand, but then they eventually came to a compromise. Because it's in everyone's best interest, isn't it, ultimately? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I mentioned last episode when we were talking about like the possibility of this, that distrib- distributors will have all the power going forwards because people are so used to lockdown and watching things at home that distributors will use this as an opportunity to breach that 12-week window and force cinemas to comply. This is just cinemas reacting to that kind of idea to say, well, no, we're not going to just be easy to bend over. You need to talk to us and arrange things with us. Um, Jeff Shell of Universal, as in his words, the whole thing is, the question is, when we come out of this, what's going to be the model? I'd expect that consumers will return to theatres and we will be part of that. I would also suspect video on demand is going to be part of that offering in some way. It's not going to be a replacement, but it will be complementary element. And we're just going to have to see how long that takes and where it takes us. He's not blanket said everything's going to be video on demand from day one. They're not daft. They don't want Bond to go straight onto TV. They they know that that's the box office marketability. Absolutely. Um, It's about an element that's not been talked about. And to some extent, we've, we've hinted at that is what the filmmaker wants as well. A filmmaker is not going to put all that time and effort into making a big film spectacular that is meant to be shared by an audience. Yes, of course, they want to make money back on the movie. It yeah. goes without saying. But there's also the, the, the Chris Nolan element, which is this film is meant to be seen in a cinema first, enjoyed by an audience. There's not a chance in hell I would have wanted to see Endgame or Dunkirk or a slew of others, uh, the last Star Wars movie, on TV, I want to see it with the best sound and the best projected image with friends that I can enjoy rather than seeing it at home. A film like yeah. like like Trolls doesn't doesn't interest me. I can see why it's been such a success as a, as a streaming vehicle, 
because of the situation that we're in and especially yeah. when it's aimed at kids and we're all doing everything we can to keep our kids interested and busy uh, as well as homeschooling but so i can see its success i don't think it's going to be the route i don't think it works for all parties and as you say quite clearly this is the beginning of a negotiation people are going to uh, saber rattle and then they're going to have clearer heads will prevail and they'll try and come to the best solution that they can i can understand the point of view of cinemas is like of well why should the distributor decide which ones breach the 12-week window and which ones don't because occasionally you get those films that were expected to do nothing knives out wasn't expected to be a huge success success it was yeah absolutely and and that found an audience if the distributor had gone with that like you know oh well this isn't expected to be a success they'd have, that had ended up going straight to home release and cinemas would have lost out and then you get the huge blockbusters that a distributor thinks is going to be amazing will do loads of loads and loads and loads of money hobbs and shaw i'm looking at you <laughs> and it comes along and it just does one good weekend and then dies off so I can understand that the cinemas don't want a distributor to use their own internal marketing, which very often fails, to decide on what what gets the 12 weeks and so gets the cinema release. I mean, I've come up with like an, an idea of what I see it going. I, I do think the 12-week window is it's it's going to be a thing of the past. We're in a whole new times now. It needs to be optional. But maybe everything starts with a 12-week window. But after week two at the cinema, it's allowed to have a review to see whether it breaks, breaches that and comes out within six, eight or ten weeks based on what that initial box office. And the reason why I say week two is because sometimes you get those films that week one, it doesn't perform. But then word of mouth boosts it and it doesn't have a huge drop off on week two. So after week two, that's when they should review and go, well, maybe 12 weeks is a bit ridiculous. We're taking it off the, off the cinemas in a week's time let it go to video on demand. And I think the, the key point and, and what you said there, Andy, is we don't know what the situation is going to be like once this is this is on, on its way out. We don't know how cinemas are going to operate. I, I think that we're in new territory and to some extent the, the home audience and, and the markets will, will, will realign to help give us a, a vision of, of what it's going to be. So I think it's, it's early days, but as we, as we both said, this is the first part of a negotiation. Over the next few weeks, we'll no doubt see some back and forthing between the distributors and cinema chains. And yeah, you know, this is all happening now because the cinemas, particularly in America, with the way that um, their government is pushing for everything to reopen ASAP, the cinemas are preparing to reopen and want to have this dealt with before they open the doors again. Yeah. So that there's not that, so that hopefully they will still be able to advertise all these films coming up, rather than they open the doors and go, well, we don't know if we're going to show anything because we're in arguments with everyone. So that's why it's happening now, and it'll it'll be two or three weeks of back and forth, and then there'll be some kind of compromise come to. I don't think that Universal Films will all get banned from AMC. I think that's just foolish thinking. If you think that that's going to the AMC and Odeon are not going to show James Bond films. Yeah, they need it. The, Let's see how this all works out, and, and we'll keep it. We'll keep reporting on it, and we'll keep updating as more words come through. But I gave it about three weeks, and then we'll have an end result on this. Okay, moving on. So Paramount, Paramount are ramping up for more GI Joe and Transformers action. That's interesting, especially. Well, we always know that that Transformers has been one of those franchises much maligned by the critics but as always well nearly always found an audience actually i'm still looking forward to seeing bumblebee i've not got around to seeing bumblebee bumblebee for me was what the transformers film should have been from day one it had the heart and the feels 
of proper transformers. It didn't have Michael Bay. Whereas I've, I've never been enamored. I've never been enamored with the Michael Bay approach to movie making. You know, basically put put people in front of a screen and put loads of special effects over it and crash, bang, boom, explosions. But Bumblebee had a heart. It had a good story and it had a look and a feel of classic Transformers. Spin-offs wise, uh, there's an animated movie which is going to be a prequel, okay. which they're working on, which is going to be focusing on the war on Cybertron and like the rise to power of Megatron and Optimus Prime and you know the conflicts involved in there. Going for an animated approach because otherwise that would have to be a huge budget. Yeah, to do the full. You know, a, a, comp- a complete CGI epic event. I mean, when you watch, when you get around to watching Bumblebee, the first couple of minutes show you some of the war on Cybertron. If they were to replicate that for one and a half hours, oh my, that would be a huge budget. <laughs> I like the idea of Bumblebee because I like the director, and I think that from what I've read, he brought something to it. The the movie's just got a, a pointless exercise in in action and uh, other over substance and story. And by the third one, I was bored. I didn't see the last one because I, at that point, you know, I, it was like being in the ring with Mike Tyson. I just get got pummeled and pummeled in the head until I fell down and just, just succumbed to unconsciousness. With Bumblebee, the film didn't perform as strongly as the previous Transformers films had done at the box office, but it didn't cost as much to make either. So it was still considered a success. And so there's two live action films that are currently in the pipeline. One which is going to be spinning off from it and based on the Beast Wars era, uh, with apparently James Vanderbilt is writing that one. And the okay, other is a spin-off choice. from Bumblebee itself, which is going to be described by Joby Harold, whether it's going to be focusing on Bumblebee or whether it's going to be... I mean, there's been a much-mooted Optimus Prime film set alongside Bumblebee, which would pay off and show like the Generation 1 style of Transformers integrating on Earth. But whatever it is, I mean, I, I'm excited to see the future of this franchise. And this was a franchise who, which before Bumblebee, I would have been quite happy for them to have just buried and gotten rid of. Uh, but the animated prequel set on the Warner Cybertron is written by Andrew Barrett and Gabrielle Ferrari, who wrote Ant-Man and Wasp. Okay. I've seen quite a lot of people this week online who've been saying Ant-Man and Wasp is one of the worst Marvel films. And I can't but disagree. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I really liked enjoyed it. that film. I I liked yeah. it. Yeah, me too. It was it was fun. It was light. Uh, it was enjoyable. You know, you know my the worst offender for me is still Thor: Dark World, even though it strangely redeemed itself with Endgame uh, and Iron Man Two, which I just I've never been back to. I started watching it again and got got fed up. But yeah, good, good credentials. <laughs> Toy Story's Josh Cooley is helming it as well. That's interesting. He, Toy Story Four, obviously, he didn't make the first Toy Story, so you know he's got that credentials of making a heartfelt animation. Uh, G.I. Joe. Yeah, now G.I. Joe, I can't see uh, as big an audience for that as I can for Transformers. It it had two films and by the second film was feeling tired. Is there room for more G.I. Joe? Well, the, the, I mean, already we've got Snake Eyes, the G.I. Joe Origins, which releases in October, because Snake Eyes has always been the most popular character. And so they've targeted this soft reboot of the franchise to just focus on the origins of Snake Eyes and try to entice an audience in to say, this isn't the ones that we did before. This is something different and get involved. Apparently, the studio are so happy with the end result of it, they are confidently developing another film already. That is confidence. But is it, again, the one thing we talk about, is it guys in a room who are over 30, over 40 going, I grew up with G.I. Joe, I had all the action figures, watched the cartoon series. This needs to be a franchise. Of course it is. Of course it is. In the same way that 30 years from now, Ben 10 will get another live action outing and it will become a huge franchise. 
because the, audio, <laughs> the, the kids who grew up with Ben 10 about a decade ago will be that old and working within the industry and will coming up with all their nostalgic memories of what they loved as a kid and wanting to see them on the big screen. Yeah. I, I'm just waiting for Tamagotchi, the movie. Sony's Marvel films have apparently got a name. <laughs> I've tried my hardest not to giggle out loud when I saw the title, when there was a clearly an obvious title. In front of them, they'd already used it, and yeah. then they went with this. Sony Pictures Universe of Marvel characters. Now, if we just want to take that down and initialize it, spunk. Yeah. <laughs> it, it rolls off the tongue, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, you've, you've already hinted. I mean, they've got a perfectly good title out there. Sony only own the Spider-Man-related universe of characters. The Spider-Verse. So why don't they just call them the Spider-Verse? Makes sense to me. But then again, we heard the Carnage title last week, so are we surprised? <laughs> well, they could call them the Sony Spider-Verse. I mean, that would be SS for sure, or maybe, maybe not the SS then. Um, maybe Spunk isn't too bad when you just think about the SS. Um, but yeah, I mean, they could have gone for so many other options. I don't know why they've gone for that one. No. So let's move away from that and talk Quickly. about... Let's move. Let's talk about Overlook. Well, we mentioned this last week in, uh, in the deal that J.J. Abrahams has got with uh, HBO Max to produce uh, several series. And we talked about and we're excited about uh, Justice League Dark. Um, yeah. There's a a series about a driver that he's doing and overlooked based on Stephen King's The Shining and Doctor Sleep, The Hotel, that figured prominently it really in both stories. A project for an Overlook prequel has been bandied around for over a decade, apparently using King's unused prologue um, before the play as a jump off onto the ideas. And over the years, names such as James Vanderbilt and Brad Fisher have been tagged with the project. But more recently, we saw Mark Romanek and Glenn Mazzara attached to it. Oh, you'll know Glenn Mazzara from uh, Walking Dead. Walking and Dead. Mark Romanek had a prominent feature uh, feature film gig for quite some time and moved into TV. He did the first episode of Tales from the Loop. I've still not watched that. Very good. Very good indeed. Highly recommended. Uh, hard. It's not an easy show. It's it's quite a somber tone to it, which makes it very special and very different. It has a, a very individualistic look to it. But anyway, yeah, Mark Romanek's great director. He did the unused pilot for Lock and Key, which I'd love to see. Romanek recently spoke about the abandoned project. He gave us an idea to what the film, which he had King's Blessing, uh, would have offered. It was about the desecration of the Indian burial ground, the construction of the Overlook Hotel in the Deep Wilderness in 1910, and it builds to the grand opening of the hotel. It was epic, are his words. However... Budget concerns over the epic nature of it and the studio ambition nixed the whole project. Plans for a shining shared universe that the studio wanted to map out fell apart when Doctor Sleep stumbled at the box office. So now we have HBO kind of to the rescue. Well, it's an interesting idea because I, for me, it would be a perfect anthology series. Uh, and each week you could have a storyline about who visits the hotel and their story and, and some of the characters that, that were introduced into the film and the book and exploring some of their backstory. I think it could be a, a great anthology as opposed to an overriding plot that, that, that sets out the override. But actually, you know, going to almost going to each room and find out what the story is behind each room. Behind each door. Yeah, what a great, what a great concept. I hope somebody's listening at HBO. Hasn't there been a, a TV series that did that at one point? What, a Stephen King story or an anthology story? An, an anthology kind of show 
I, I'm not talking about the most recent one, which is American Horror Story um, Hotel, but I'm sure there was one in the 90s or the early part of this century that was a hotel and it focused on the stories from each room. I, I might have just dreamt it. If it's a great dream. I'm going to have to research this because if, if this turns out to be true, I want to find that TV <laughs> show and watch it again. Anyway. Yeah, so that's our, our, our 10 cents worth, um, if anyone's listening, uh, Bad Robot. I'm, I'm excited for it. I mean, I'm a big Stephen King fan, and I was disappointed that Dr. Sleep didn't find the audience that I felt that it deserved. I know that you weren't as enamoured with the film as I was. No, I liked it. I liked Dr. Sleep. I actually thought it was a, a, a better a better film than the book, which is uh, quite unusual. But I thought all the problems I had with Stephen King's book, the film managed to resolve. And by tying it up back to the Overlook, which was missing in, yeah. in the book, it, it gave it a greater credence. I, as I said, I prefer it to the book. Uh, I thought Ewan McGregor was great in it. I've not seen the director's cut. I'd be interested to see that. Yeah, I've still got to check that out. Let's see what HBO do with the property. It's a great idea. We reported last week on Scorsese's latest film production, raising money for the charity organisations via the All In Challenge. Well, Jurassic World Dominion has joined in the mix, doing its own charity fundraising via All In Challenge and offering a winner a chance to appear in the film. And they've specified, it was Chris Pratt who did the announcements on his Twitter feed and Instagram feeds, like with a video thing. It's not just one of these where you'll get to be in the film, however, get to the cutting room floor, they go, that didn't work and they cut it out. They've specified that you will be in a recognisable role, i.e. your face will be on screen. That's a great idea. You will be killed by a dinosaur. Even better idea. And they promise it will not be cut from the film. That's a fantastic idea. I am so in for this. <laughs> you going for it? Are you going to go for it? <laughs> oh, I, I, I've got, got to check through the terms and conditions to see whether you have to be in the US to be involved. But if you can be international, then I am, I am going for this because I would love to get killed by a dinosaur in a franchise that I think stinks. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the double irony. <laughs> no, more because it would wind up all my mates who love this franchise, the fact that I got involved in it when I don't like it. <laughs> It's like my own personal revenge. Let's move swiftly on as I dwell in... Dinosaur into dinosaur hell. Rawson Marshall Thurber, who gave us Dodgeball and the epic that is Skyscraper. Oh, what a film. Did you see it in 3D, by the way, Skyscraper? I didn't know. I, you know if my you're going to see it, see it in, in 3D. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say, because that's... Absolute nonsense disaster feature. movie. Yeah. He's on to direct an adaptation of Mad Magazine's Spy vs. Spy strip. Now, are, are you a fan of Spy vs. Spy? I quite like some Mad Magazine stuff. It feels as though it belonged to the 70s and, and the 80s. And I know it's sort of, I don't know if it's ended publication, but I know it was dying a death. No, it's still uh, going. Is it still going? Yeah. I thing subscribed with... to the digital one last year. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, Spy vs. Spy was always that, that little one page black suited spy and the white suited spy battling it out i just wonder if there's enough of that for for a plot because the, the i know there was an animated series and that can work but it's all slapstick it's just a pure slapstick story i mean for those who don't know it's it started in 1961 was created by antonio proas yes. and it's a white spy and a black spy big triangular faces triangular hats and like typical both spy look exactly the same conducting a series of capers to try to kill each other if you think Wiley e. Coyote style antics, that's it. That's what the strip is. And the strips are always like only a few short panels, uh, usually around about six to eight panels. Occasionally there's a full page strip, but most of the time it was just short little gags. 
it would be like what a whole one and a half hour film would be like watching a one and a half hour episode of the itchy and scratchy show you see i don't think there's enough to hang on to and that's going to be the problem with it yes it's an identifiable title but ultimately are you going to look at it and go yeah is it going to work for that long because you've got to give them personalities you've got to give them a uh uh, give him a storyline, and and I think that's where it'll fall apart. I'll I'll be waiting there to be proved wrong. I'm, I might be looking. It might be the comedy genius that we've been waiting for for a long yeah. time. It could be the next Marx Brothers for me. But I just seem to think there's a, there's an issue with that. It's such a such a thin idea in the first place to to make into a complete movie. Uh, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer were initially on board to create and direct, but will now re- remain only as producers. So uh, with those two names who were initially developing it, it shows that there's something in there that could possibly be worked. But the fact that they've now stepped away to let someone else uh, script and direct it maybe means that they were struggling. The closest thing to it, really, do you remember that film with Chris Pine uh, called This Means War? Yeah, sadly, I remember that film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, two spies wanting to date uh, Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, it's kind of that. That was sort of spy versus spy. It was it was Tom Hardy, Chris Pine all tried to win the affections of of Reese Witherspoon and trying to outdo each other. That almost was spy versus spy. And a quick roundup of the last little bits of news. In a complete no surprise, David Leach and Chad and oh, I'm always struggling with this surname. So we just say the two directors of John Wick. <laughs> Will that help? Uh, the the John Wick directors are working on the Matrix 4 stunt sequences. Now, both of those guys were involved in the original trilogy. Uh, Stajowski came on board on the second film, and they were stunt coordinators and stunt performers. So they took their experience on those films and crafted the amazing sequences that make the John Wick film so memorable. So it's no surprise at all that they've been asked back to come and coordinate the stunts again. Yeah, they were integral to, to the way that the film, the action sequences in The Matrix became such classics and their their stunt work has been seen across lots and lots of films and of course what they've done with John Wick has been phenomenal and given it its own style and its own own vision so it looks like where they're going with the matrix for is you know is bring back as much of the old uh, the people who worked on the originals so it feels as a sense of continuation a bit at this point we still know nothing about matrix 4 i'm assuming it's in lockdown had it started production at this point? Do we know? Hasn't there been some on-set shots of Keanu Reeves? Yes, there was. John Wickish. So interesting. I'm looking forward to it. I hope it's one of those things that you know everybody involved comes back to it for the best possible reason, yeah. which is to make a great film, and and sort of helps smooth over the difficulties that were the Matrix two and three. Yeah, uh, Disney remakes are thundering on with Hercules coming from the Russos. Yes, saw that one. Alive- and a live-action Tarzan. Now, my my concern, well, my, it's not a concern. It's it's kind of like a, a little bit of a niggle with regards to these Disney live-action remakes, is that when you're talking about things like Hercules and Tarzan, you're talking live-action remakes of films that were animated remakes of already established stories or properties. And there's so many people who don't know that Disney didn't create these things Disney just adapted them in the first place. And so everyone's just like, oh, Disney's Tarzan, Disney's Tarzan. No, no. Tarzan was around well before Disney. Yeah, is that a generational thing, though? We know because we grew up with it. I think it is. But I think it's it's a shame that there is a generation who ignore the fact that there's other things prior to Disney making them. They don't see that Disney were influenced or adapted things. They just see that Disney made everything. Live action Tarzan. Do we need another live action Tarzan? 
as far as I'm concerned, we've already got Greystoke, the legend of Tarzan with Christopher Lambert. Christopher Lambert. And that's the only version that we ever need. There was a version that came out recently with uh, from Warner Brothers with Margot Robbie in it. And it didn't really set the box office alight. I think the thing with Tarzan is it's, it's again, some of the issues that we've talked about. It's, it's an established character. You have to do something very, very different with him. You'd think actually now with the, the state of effects work and you look at The Lion King, that you could do something incredibly spectacular. Maybe this is where Disney will go. I do think Disney's animated feature, apart from the songs and the anthropomorphic animals, is the closest that we've actually had to the telling of Edgar Rice Burroughs' original story. I'd like to still, it's a bit like there's never been the perfect Batman origin film for me. I still think there's a perfect Tarzan origin film to be had and the perfect Tarzan adventure. I I honestly, throughout, I know he's one of those characters who's been filmed probably as much as Sherlock Holmes. I still think I'm waiting for the perfect Tarzan film. I'm calling it now Jason Momoa for Tarzan. We'll come back to that one. And just to round up the news, if you've not been paying attention to theatre productions, which have been streaming out for free, along with, like I think we've mentioned previously, the Andrew Lloyd Webber ones have been running every Friday. Um, I'm sorry. National... Sorry to hear that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I've got some time for, well, I had some time for um, Jesus Christ Superstar. That's about it. The rest of the Andrew Lloyd Webber ones, I'm not really that enamoured with. But um, National Theatre, in case you're not aware, have been releasing one of their productions each week on a Thursday, and it runs for each week all the way through. Well, this week they've tackled one of their most famous ones, Frankenstein. That's the Danny Boyle version, isn't it? Yeah, with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. And what they've done is on Thursday they released the version, I think, with Cumberbatch as the monster. Yeah, they swapped roles, didn't they? That was the... That was the uh, the whole nature of that particular production is that the the actors swap roles on it on each different yeah. night, and then they're releasing the alternate flip version of it halfway through the week. So I think tomorrow we're recording this on Sunday. So if you listen to this after Sunday, it's Monday. That one is released, and they will run up until Thursday. At which point, another National Theatre production will stream out live. These are great productions. One they thing are. about the National Theatre productions is the. The, the quality of the cast is always names that you instantly recognise, and they are engrossing, engaging, and really majestically done. I watched the Fleabag one, which was the first one up, I think, that the the uh, National Theatres were doing. Um, big fan of... One-person monologue. Yeah, a big fan of Fleabag. Um, yeah. Slightly disappointed with the stage show, to be honest. Um, didn't love it as much as I loved the TV series, but I do think that... Uh, that it was ju- it was just superb and a superb way to be able to watch it. So g- get those checked out. It's something to do during lockdown. National Theatre Live Productions. They're also using it to raise money um, for good organisations relating to the arts. So if you do find yourself watching them, please donate. And that's it for the news. Um, moving on. Every week I've been setting Andy a challenge of a classic film that he has to watch. He's, he's given me a list. We had Flags With Our Father last week, and then the one I set him was Mark Forster's Finding Neverland, starring Johnny Depp. came out in 2004. It was an historical fantasy drama based on the play The Man Who Was Peter Pan. And the film is about playwright J.M. Barry and his relationship with a family who inspired him to create Peter Pan. Uh, earned seven nominations at the 77th Academy Awards, uh, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor for Johnny Depp. And it did win for Best Original Score. 
And I think from what I know, the film was the uh, inspiration for a stage musical, the same name that came out 2011, 2012 time, if you think on. So, Andy, what did you think of Finding Neverland? Yeah, as you say, it's a, it's a film that looks at J.M. Barry's friendship with the Davies boys, uh, George, Jack, Peter and Michael, which were the inspirations for Peter Pan. And I've really enjoyed this film. I got a lot from it. This is Oh, that's good. Johnny Depp's performance is very subdued compared to what we tend to know him for these days. Because I think over the past decade in particular, he's become kind of a parody of his own image. On the yeah, film. I, I'll agree with that. And, and you do forget that... He was considered until really Pirates of the Caribbean as a sort of almost character actor. It went for quirky independent movies as opposed to big blockbusters. Yeah. And, and was very much known for almost uh, subdued performances. And he plays well like alongside Kate Winslet in this, who plays the mother of the boys, the widowed Sylvia. And the film focuses on their close friendship and the friendship in particular that Barry developed with the young boys. Because... J.M. Barry is Peter Pan. He is the boy who never grew up. He never saw the point in becoming serious and, you know, forgetting fantasy. He was creative and he, you know, he loved childlike imaginations. And it, it hints on the scandal that the friendship caused at the time. You know, yeah. here's a widow who was now being courted by a married man, even though it was purely, allegedly purely platonic. And he just like took a good shine to the family and really enjoyed their company. There was nothing sexual in there. Yeah, there was. A, it was and, almost a, a, a childlike playfulness, wasn't it? And it does touch vaguely. There's a threat. There's a small line. There's a throwaway line because some of the scandal at the time was the appropriateness of Barry's friendship with the boys. And there's a line thrown into the film that could have been delivered in a really distasteful way. But it's put in there just as, as like a you know what people are saying about and like him as Barry like Depp as Barry was like what that's disgusting why would I why would anyone think that and it's, that's the way to dismiss those scandalous rumours that were around at the time yeah because you got to remember that it was against a, a rigid Edwardian society and, and very, that very was rigid. that was looked upon I mean Nothing there were right. <laughs> yeah there's 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 a lot happening in, in this film, a lot of different tones at work. But primarily, it, it, it all deals with how the events of his friendship with the family helped him mould the story of Peter Pan. And the way that it does this is the bit that really captured me on this film, because it's the, it's the almost fantastical transitions that it does as he'll be telling a story to the kids and then it will show like the imagination side of it and you get some special effects and you get some backdrops and costumes and everything. And it's beautifully conveyed to really draw you into the magic of the story. I, I had a lot of love with this film. Oh, good. I'm really pleased. I, I liked it a lot. I liked the different tones at work on it. It's, it's very touching. There's the glimmer of magical adventure in the telling of the stories. And it's a solid reminder of why Johnny Depp is the star that he is. Because it is, because of the reasons that we've already mentioned, quite easy to forget how amazing an actor Depp can actually be. I, I agree. And I think he, he plays well off Kate, Kate Winsler. Uh, she gives it a, a very grounded performance while Depp has the more whimsical character to, to, to play. I find it really touching as a film, but I don't find it maudling, which it could have gone down yeah. that street. I put that down to director Mark Forster. Mark Forster's made some quite varied films from a, a, a Bond film to, to World War Z. But he always comes at a film with with a lot of style, and I, and I felt that that's what he what he did with this. He he found a, a, an interesting combination of of you say the the fantasy and yet the domestic issues and the earthiness of it. And I think it's a sharp film. 
I think it's an intelligent film. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm glad you did as well, because I, I think it's it's about finding the magic in yourself and, and, and not being able to turn away from, from sort of childlike childlike views yeah. of the world. Yeah, don't, don't, don't let the adult in you stop you from enjoying the magic of life. And, Good. You know, it, it, I mean, I've, I've been referred to a few times as being like a Peter Pan kind of figure, maybe not in actual physique, but um, in the fact that I, I love childlike things that are generally considered to be childlike, childish comic books. I love games. I love storytelling. I lo- you know, I love that kind of imagination. So watching something which shows like J.M. Barry was basically that kind of person makes you kind of go, I can relate to that. I well, isn't that an up. interesting thing, is it? That, that, you know, the love of, of, of cinema and the love of, of, of fantasy does keep us, keeps that childlike aspect of us alive inside and, and, and enables us not to, to look at the world in a sort of world-weary, cynical way and that, that we still get excited by, by a new movie or a new comic book or something to read or something to play, all the things that we talk about in the show. I, th- I think it's an important thing and I'd rather have that than yeah. having a dour, colourless look on life, and and you know I, I embrace the sort of the film geek and the, the the genre geeks that we are. But yeah, Finding Neverland's definitely one that was worth watching. I'm glad I've ticked that one off my list, and this is one that I'll probably get round to watching again. And that's the key thing is that there's there's a few of these films that I've been watching as part of my Oscar history, re, like watches for the first time that I've watched them once. I'm probably not going to watch them again, but this I'm keeping to one side and I'll probably pop it on again when I just want that kind of feel of a movie. So I know that on the list you've got, there's still a lot of great movies outstanding. There's a good three or four that I can, uh, I, I can go to as being, yes, you've got to see that this week because it is one of my all time favorite films. And I reference it when I'm teaching about cinema. I think it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. It's not to everybody's taste. And that film is, Andy, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. It is in my all-time top ten. I adore this film. Come back next week and tell me your views. And if you don't like it, that's fine. We'll just never speak again. <laughs> but that's that's your challenge for this week. And I hopefully, I know you've got a big TV at your house. See it in silence. See it with the best sound that you've, you've got. See it with the biggest screen you can you can get your hands on. And then let me know what you think to that, because I adore it. As someone who has a love for Westerns, it is quite a strange omission from um, my watching history. And I, I like the cast are involved in it. I just don't know why it slipped me by. And that's the thing with a lot of these films, is a lot of these films are the kind of films that would appeal to me, but they just slipped me by somehow. So going through this list, and I, I urge everyone to do a similar kind of list, jot down all the names of all the films that you really wish you'd gotten around to. Start watching them. Because I am loving mixing these in, watching a couple of these, and then watching some of my favourite like rewatches, and then going back and doing more of these, and exploring all the films that are missed for no good reason. Good enough reason there, if any, Andy. Okay, so this week we don't have a deep dive, we don't have any films to review. We are going to be looking at a topic that's get, getting mentioned quite a lot. I do a lot of radio, and people are asking me all the time, why are films like Contagion and Pandemic Stories doing very, very well on Netflix, on TV? And that's brought up to me is why films of a dystopian nature are, are becoming very, very popular at the moment. And, and I think clearly the answer for me is 
is because all of these stories in in the world that we're living with have an ending and usually have an optimistic ending. But that's opened up uh, a category of dystopian films. Why are dystopian films at this moment been very, very popular and been seen to be very popular? And uh, looking back through sort of film history during the 80s, the dystopian science fiction film on the back end of Terminator became very, very popular uh, genre again. And I think that was again down to things like the Cold War and the escalation in the Cold War. So Andy and I have decided to look at dystopian films in general, do a deep cut on several films that we found interesting and exciting. So Andy, what do we see as a literal translation of a dystopian film? Well, you know, utopian films are the ones in which the future society is perfect and everything is like immaculate and everyone has everything done for them. Dystopia is an imaginary community or society that's undesirable or frightening. And so that blanket description can cover pretty much a huge abundance of sci-fi. But I think what it's mostly related to is that wave of like 60s to 70s kind of dystopian films that came out. Your things like Soylent Green, your Logan's Runs, your Fahrenheit 451, uh, <laughs> Zardoz. You know, that's what a lot of people associate them with. But it's a lot more wide ranging than that. And um, if we look at the origins of dystopian films, you're looking, I mean, the most popular one is 1927's Metropolis which has had so many re-releases over the years and, you know, being re-engineered because it's iconic. And it's a lot of the modern dystopia films take a lot of influence from that film. That's, that's the whole, like, you know, the big industrial machine, like, which is holding up society. The upper echelons of society are living in their, like, big palaces above all the, like, common people on the ground, et cetera, et cetera, rebellion, et cetera, et cetera. And that has all the concepts in one beautiful film. But it wasn't the first film to be classed as a dystopian film. Which would that be? Dr. Mabuse the Gambler. Which was an exaggerated portrayal of Germany in which the titular villain can exploit for power and profit. And that was the film that originated the whole dystopian look, the whole Big Brother kind of approach. And speaking of Big Brother, you can't talk about dystopia without mentioning 1984, which has been adapted twice to film and a few times to TV. Yeah, there was an excellent Peter Cushing TV version, which I saw when the BBC released some of their classic back catalogue as a celebration. And it is a truly disturbing version of 1984. And I think think dystopian, as you said, is, is a blanket term that covers so many different areas. And that's why it does appeal and run through science fiction very well. The idea of a dystopian future and a dystopian film is, is really a blanket term to talk about lots and lots of issues about society issues and an, an imaginary communities or a world that, that ultimately becomes undesirable. And so whether that's down to uh, big business, uh, like, like Blade Runner to a degree, technological like Blade Runner, ethical, religious, uh, political, economical, cultural, environmental disasters, uh, yeah. it, it really is, a, is an overall blanket term that, 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 that we see as, a, as dystopian futures. And so, therefore, when when I looked at lists of what we consider to be dystopian films, there were films in there that I wouldn't necessarily think of as being the classic dystopian films. I mean, for me, a classic one is a film like A Boy and His Dog, which is based on the Harlan Ellison story, A Boy and His Dog, which focuses on the survival of a boy and his intelligent dog. They've got a telepathic connection within a post-apocalyptic wasteland. One of my all-time favourite film stars, a young Don Johnson, that, to me 
is my ideal of a dystopian film. Same with something like Book of Eli. But but Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 also fit into the idea of a dystopian future because it's a, it's a different interpretation of that particular theme. Dystopian films are, are always set in a future and the future could look bright and perfect, but there's something underlying not right within there. Like you say, the, the really like iconic dystopian films are the ones that... You, tell some kind of political or social message as the underlying theme behind it without it being too labored or heavy-handed it seems like a natural extension of the story i mean even films like planet of the apes planet of the apes is a dystopian film yeah absolutely i mean even the modern version of it like and the original version how mankind's quest for war decimated mankind and so the apes rose and took power in the more modern one it's a if I'm, coincidentally it's a contagion that breaks out and weakens the human race whilst also helping evolve the primates to become more intelligent and take over yeah there's an element of genetic ma- manipulation within that as well which is again this fear of ex- yeah absolutely that's the word i was looking for cautionary tales and like you're saying that a lot of the times there's some kind of like positive outcome at the end to give some hope because it's supposed that they're intended to make you watch them reflect on them and relate to them in some way and go, oh my God, we're in that kind of situation. But then at the end go, but there is a glimmer of hope at the end of this and make you think, well, maybe the society that we're in at the moment isn't that bad and it can get better if we pay attention to these lessons. What particular films from this genre are the ones that stand out for you? What are your go-to dystopian films? My immediate go-to film is Logan's Run. It's funny you should say that, because I've been on a <laughs> Logan's Run kick at, over the last uh, over the last couple of weeks. I've gone back and I've read the original novel. I, I love Logan's Run. It was my kind of introduction to sci-fi, almost pre pre Star Wars, and I've got a a, a real soft spot soft spot for Logan's Run. Originally based on a novel by William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson depicts a utopian future society where the only thing that can go wrong is that you are terminated at the age of 21 in the book and in the film it was 30. This is one film that is due a remake and a reboot that can really improve on it in a a lot lot of ways. It gets bandied around quite frequently. I've seen it mentioned during the, the pandemic to be honest. Yeah. And I think it's only a matter of time before we do see a new version of Logan's Run, either as a film or as a TV series. It already had a TV series after the film came out. Oh, which was pretty terrible. Not as good. (laughs) Some good ideas in there, but just not the budget to be able to convey them. But what I love about Logan's Run is it's, it's multiple ideas of a dystopian future. It's the controlled society where a, a machine mind is controlling your life, basically. And you go through your stages of life until the machine decides that you die. But it's been conveyed into a religious aspect. So it covers religion that you get renewed. Your body is destroyed, but your essence is born again in another life. And then it goes through identity issues. So it covers social identity as Logan starts to discover the truth behind everything and starts to discover what it's like to actually live. And because it encompasses, it's not just one message that it's sending, it covers a lot, but in quite a fun sci-fi adventure kind of way. The the messages are not heavy, they're not laboured, but it does leave you thinking by the end of it. It's a great film and it's a pure joy to keep going back to. I'm going to name, I'm going to throw into the ring, I Am Legend, again a film that's been banded around a lot in the last few days. 
because of uh, the story behind it is a, a starts with a global pandemic. There have been three big screen versions of it. Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, which is the one that's truer than anything else to Richard Matheson's original novel. In many ways, it, it's, it was Matheson's script, though he took his name off it. It was going to be made by Hammer became an Italian film with Vincent Price. So in many ways, it's the best portrayal of this story there is. It suffers, the original film suffers now from from uh, poor special effects. Vincent Price is great in it, but it's, it's it's one film that's still, for me, and we've talked about this a lot, that's never been made perfectly. There was The Omega Man with Charlton Heston, which was a riff on it, and then, of course, I Am Legend yeah. with Will Smith, which I enjoy a lot but goes away in the second half. There's, o- there's only the ending of that film that kind of let it down for me. I mean, I kind of got what they were doing with the ending, but I wanted I wanted the ending from the book. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very dark ending. And to some extent, again, The Last Man on Earth, the Vincent Price version, covers that in a much better way than than The Omega Man and I Am Legend. Yeah. You know what would be right right now with looking at HBO Max is that it's one of those films that would make a great series. A great limited series on, on HBO where you could do it properly, throw some money at it and, and stay truer to the book than the, the versions that we've had subsequently. So that would be mine. Uh, Last Man on Earth, Omega Man and I Am Legend. But you've got you've also got like dystopian films that you wouldn't think of as dystopian films until you properly look at them. You mean like Those the Lego movie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a pure dystopia. Um, but action films, Running Man, Robocop, Terminator, you know, these are dystopian futures. These are dystopian nightmares. But given that sense of fun to them that you don't realise the dystopias in there, but it covers the same political machinations or corporate control or yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in the modern day, we've had films su- such as the very underwatched Oblivion, which was the Tom Cruise That's a great starring film. film. It is Absolutely a very good film. film. Uh, Children of Men, which has to rank as one of the best dystopian films of the modern era. I'll agree with on that. On TV, we've got Westworld. You've also got, on TV, I mean, has there been any dystopian sci-fi which has had such an impact as Handmaid's Tale? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's also it's a, one of those genres that's been embraced with with uh, in the young adult novels, like Diversions and Hunger, Hunger Games. Games. Mortal Engines to a degree, and uh, Maze Runner, although it's particularly on the second book and film that it started to really explore that aspect of it. The, f- the first book and film was more just like a, a trapped scenario. Um, even films such as Ready Player One are yeah, set absolutely. in dystopian societies, um, even though it's given more of a nostalgic, like referential, fun aspect to it. The societal aspect, of the reason why everyone's going online and jacking in all the time, is simply because the world is destroyed because of corporate greed. It sounds like dystopia could just be dark, oppressive, and really like uh, hard hitting, but it's played for laughs so often. City of Lost Children and Delicatessen by June and Caro. Yeah. yeah Brazil has to be one of the best dystopian films ever made. Funny and, and dark at the same time. From start to finish. Yeah. And uh, Tank Girl, which not a great film, but the dystopian setting can't be ignored just before we end up on this one give me your top three dystopian films other than the ones we've talked about i'll give you mine well i i am a fan of philip k dick and i know we've already mentioned blade runner and blade runner 2049 so i'm going to throw a scanner darkly in there okay um i will also throw in bizarrely serenity yes and 
I guess the idea that society has moved out into space because of war and is ruled by corporations is a dystopian view of the future. I know, I know you said don't throw out something that we've already, th- already said, but I have to say 1984. Okay, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Blade Runner because it's, it's still for me and Blade Runner 2049 are, are still the future that that comes instantly to mind when I think about a future society, the Planet of the Apes series because I'm ultimately a world dominated by apes does appeal to me in many ways sure. and of course uh, Mad Max especially the Road Warrior which is the image of the future that we all hope that we're not going to get and still has a big impact on on everything to do with how we see society falling apart, and especially when it came back with Fury Road. Oh, I, I'm going to swap one of mine out. I don't know which one. I don't care which one, but I'm going to swap one out for um, Woody Allen's Sleeper. <laughs> Again, dystopia <laughs> done for laughs. It does work. I completely forgot about that until I've just looked back through my notes. And <laughs> so that's our look at dystopian films. If you've got any ideas of what you think are the classic dystopian films that we've missed, you can contact us on... At Filmfile UK over on Twitter. Okay, and that's more or less it for this week. We're going to have a quick look around at things that we found interesting, whether it's been reading, watching, playing, or just having fun with. What is your neat thing for this week, Andy? My neat thing that I'm bringing to the table is Humble Bundle. Are you aware of Humble Bundle? I'm going to say no, and then I'm going to feel ridiculous about it. So Humble Bundle if you, is a website at humblebundle.com, and they do bundle deals usually on PC video game collections where like for $1 you can get these five games and then for $5 you can get this and up to $15, et cetera, et cetera. Really good way to save money on games. But they also do book deals quite frequently. And this week they added the Walking Dead graphic novel collection. The whole collection of Walking Dead graphic novels in digital form to purchase and download for, I think it was about $15 for the whole lot. And that's running with the Walking Dead one for the next two weeks. But they always have very, they, they regularly put new bundle deals up there. And I use Humble Bundle quite frequently. I filled out my whole Spawn collection, even though I've got a load of them in comic book format. I've got them all in digital as well. There's been Transformers ones, Star Trek ones, Star Wars comics. They do great book deals, great comic book deals, and great video game deals. And the money that you pay for them, you can choose whether it goes to the charity which the bundles getting tagged to the games developers who made the games or the creators of the comics or books or humble bundle themselves. And there's little sliding bars for you to decide what proportion goes to each thing. So it's a great way to rate, like donate money to charity and get some really good bargains. Like I said, the walking dead full graphic novels collection from one right the way through until volume 31, which was the final one all there. And they're all on my tablet now for me to work through. That sounds excellent. We should put a link to that in our our write-up uh, on our podcast. So yes, I think it sounds like a worthy be. cause. Mine's throwing back now to 1981, 1983, and 1996. And rediscovered this in the last couple of weeks, and I know you're ready to listen as well. And that's the Star Wars radio series. Did yep. everybody out there know that there was a Star Wars radio series? I'd heard rumours of this. But I thought it was just rumours. Well, when Star Wars was out and it was at the height of its popularity, everybody wanted to cash in on it. Uh, and in the States in particular, the there was a decline in radio drama. It's something that in the UK we've held on to, thankfully to Radio 4. The Star Wars radio dramas were, were done for very little money. The original cast only had Mark Hamill and Anthony Daniels in. Everybody else was uh, uh, recast. 
but they were fascinating. They were a co-production between the US and the BBC. And I remember them being on, I was very young, being on Radio 1 daily. So Star Wars absolutely runs, there was 13 episodes, runs at nearly four and a bit hours. Empire Strikes Back is about, uh, it was 10, and Return of the Jedi was six. We, I've managed to get hold of copies of, uh, of, of all three, and I'm just working my way through Star Wars. They are absolutely fantastic and absolutely incredibly well done, but give you another uh, another edge to the Star Wars stories because you know them so well. You know, especially A New Hope, incredibly well. The fact that the story and the radio play starts on Tatooine instantly with Luke and all the stuff that you'd read about in the novel and the adaptations of seeing Luke's life on Tatooine before he he's, he's even ends up as, as part of the rebellion is, is, is much more explored and we see a, a bigger worldview we see episodes uh, through different characters' eyes. They give not only an interesting dramatization to the Star Wars story that you know, but gives us insights and in-depth and just in- incredibly original ways of, of telling a story that we're so familiar with. So that's the Star Wars radio shows. I'm still working my way. I think there's, there's 16 hours altogether of, of the full series. I'm still working my way through the original New Hope, but it is absolutely fantastic. If you get a chance to find them anywhere, I think you'll probably find them on YouTube. They are well worth a listen. And that's my neat thing for this week. Neat. So that's it for this week from The Film File. We'll be back next week where we'll be looking at another deep dive. Andy, you're going to be looking at a Oscar classic that we've not explored. Yep. Uh, And that's it from me. And remember, it's not the spoon that bends, it's only yourself. 